You know, Israel is one of the most fascinating countries to visit. I hope one day you'll be able to go with me, but in the meantime, I just want to share a few things with you about modern Israel, modern Israeli society. So stick with me. Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, Join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Well, welcome to our Israel Answers teaching series to part five of our Connecting the Bible to Today where we have been connecting the dots between the Bible times and today in terms of Judaism and Christianity, anti-Semitism, how the state of Israel was formed. And today I want to bring that series to an end and talk about modern Israel. I want you to understand better some of the facets of modern Israel because it is just so fascinating. Um, you know, first of all, Israel is a very ethnically diverse place. And that's the first thing you learn when you go there. You realize Jews come in all sizes, shapes, and colors. And I say that with love in my heart for them. But uh, you realize that they're not one ethnicity or one um, race, that there's Black, there's Asian, there's Middle Eastern, there is... Uh, Western, European-looking, Russian, all these different types of people that uh, make up the mosaic of Israel. And that's because of the various waves of what we call Aliyah, or immigration to the land. When Israel was first born, about 80% of it was of European or Russian descent. So uh, that was the fair-complected uh, Western, Ashkenazi, and then when Israel was formed, all the Jews living throughout the Middle East, most of them had to flee their homes and um, make their way to Israel really as refugees. There were hundreds of thousands of them. And so they come and they have that darker Middle Eastern complexion and, and culture. They ate uh, Eastern foods. They, they lived according to Eastern family traditions and society. And, and all of a sudden, they're over 50% of Israel. There was a great clash of cultures taking place there. And then in the late 80s, when the Iron Curtain fell in, over a million Russians have immigrated to Israel just in the 90s, early 2000s. They came, they had grown up under communism. They didn't know the first thing about Judaism. They had no religious understanding. They didn't know the Hebrew culture. They didn't know the Middle Eastern culture. They were very, very different. They brought with them eating pork and drinking vodka, honestly. It was very, very different, another clash of cultures. And then they're in the immigration absorption centers, and who do they meet? Israel had just airlifted 14,000 Ethiopian Jews out of a very simple agrarian society in Ethiopia, and they find their way into the absorption centers with the Russians, another major 
clash of cultures. And that's what makes Israel so fascinating. And while you have this great ethnic diversity, just the geography of the state of Israel is very diverse. You go from Mount Hermon up north where you have snow-capped mountains and ski resorts down to just I don't know what, a couple of hours away, you're at the lowest point on earth down at the Dead Sea where they never see snow or cold weather. They hardly see rain. And, um, and it's the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea. And then you want to go to Jerusalem, you climb up the Judean cliff sides of this barren Judean wilderness. Well, in America, for us, a wilderness means like a forest with all kinds of green and vines and trees. You can't make your way through the wilderness. No, no, no. That is not what wilderness means in Israel. The Judean wilderness is a desert, but it's a mountainous desert. And it goes all the way from the Dead Sea Valley up stark cliffs, up into the hillside, leading up to Jerusalem. To the south, it goes down into the Negev Desert. Fascinating place. I love it. And then on the other side of Jerusalem, you have the rolling hills. You can actually see the Mediterranean Sea from the other side of Jerusalem. And you just can't get this type of geographic contrast. Uh, all squeezed into this one little nation about the size of New Jersey. Then let's talk about the religious diversity. Well, a few weeks ago, I talked about Judaism and the great diversity within Judaism. And so I'm not going to repeat that, but you'll see that in Israel, everything from the ultra-Orthodox who dress in black coats and white shirts and black hats and the curls and very, very strict adherence to the law, but also to the teachings of their rabbis that they follow. And you can tell which rabbi or which school of thought that they follow based on how they dress. And then you have the more everyday orthodox that wears a kippah, maybe a, a white shirt and business pants, but uh, lives a little bit more integrated into society. And then you have the more everyday traditional Israeli that maybe wears a kippah when they go to synagogue, but not everyday life. And, and then you just keep moving into more and more of a everyday modern Western adherence, very little observance of the law and all of this diversity in Israel here in this one state. And sometimes they disagree with each other. And politically, they're kind of fighting it out right now. Should the ultra-Orthodox serve in the army or not? Should the ultra-Orthodox have their own schools and their own system or not? And and they, they fight it out amongst themselves. Um, but there's also other religions in the land of Israel. So we have almost 20% of Israelis are not even Jewish. Most of them are Muslim. So there's many mosques throughout Israel. There is a whole Muslim society uh, within Israel. And then there's a much smaller minority that are Christians. And when I say Christians, I mean of, of Arab descent or of Aramaic descent, of Middle Eastern descent. They've been living in Israel all along. They have Israeli citizenship. And, um, and then 
there is the that let me segue into talking about the Arab minority in Israel. There is this 20%, but they are full Israeli citizens. They have Israeli passports, they they have voting rights, they have their own political parties. Right now in the Israeli government, there is a coalition government, and that coalition has one Arab party in the coalition. In the government of Israel, there is an Arab party today. There are Arab Supreme Court justices. There are Arabs in the police forces. There are Arabs in the border patrol forces. There are Arabs in the Israeli Foreign Service. They serve as ambassador. There are Arab minorities that are uh, former Miss Israel was a, an Arab Israeli. Um, it goes on and on and on. So they have opportunities. Yes, they suffer as any minority in any country in the world has some uh, level of inequality. Um, it's just part and parcel with being a minority. But in Israel, this minority has a, even an additional uh, obstacle an additional uh, difficulty, and that is that they are of the ethnicity and the language and maybe of the religion of the surrounding countries that Israel has been at war with and still at a state of war with some of them. And so this minority has a special security risk associated with it. Israel has to keep a close eye on them. Is there any radicalization taking place within the mosque that Israel sees as a security threat? And, and you see an Arab on the street, it's not always obvious. Are they Christian? Are they uh, Muslim? I mean, even sometimes it's hard to tell the, the Jews from them because of the similar ethnicity. So um, I want to make another point here about the Arab minority. There is a difference, and this is a real confusing point for a lot of people. There is a difference in being an Israeli Arab, which is this minority of the, that have citizenship in Israel, and in being a Palestinian. A Palestinian doesn't live inside Israel proper. They live inside what are called the Palestinian territories. Now, I know some of you listening believe that all of that should be Israel. I'm not debating that. I'm just saying that there is a section of the country that over the last 20 years, Israel made an agreement and turned a part of its uh, governing over to the Palestinian Authority. So today, 98% of the Palestinian Arabs live in cities and territories that are under a Palestinian government. It's largely in the territory you've heard of called the West Bank. And then we have the Gaza Strip, which I'll talk about in a minute. Right now, I just want to talk about the, the Arabs that are in the West Bank area and uh, they're called Palestinians, and that's because they are not Israeli citizens. Now, there is a minority of Israeli Arabs that are Israeli citizens that call themselves Palestinian in solidarity with the Palestinian movement, and so I know it gets really confusing, but when you're talking about Israel's treatment of the Arabs or the situation of the Arabs, you must understand that there are these two main categories 
Israeli citizenship Arabs and Palestinian Arabs under Palestinian government, then, yeah, there's a little bit of an overlapping and there are some gray areas in between the two. But once you understand these two differences, then you can begin to understand some of the issues we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. Now, let me talk about the Israeli government. Because for Americans, we have a hard time understanding the Israeli government because we have a different system. Their system is the parliamentarian system. And so in Israel, you don't vote for a prime minister. Uh, you, you vote for a party. And so you vote for a party, and then at the, they add up the votes, and there may be 15, 20 different parties running in an election. And some of those parties will get so few votes that they don't even earn them any seats in the government. So they're like, they're not even in the parliament. But if you get enough votes, then based on how many votes your party gets, you get a number of seats in the parliament. So Israel has never ever had a party that got enough votes to be the majority in the parliament, which in, they call the Knesset. In Hebrew, it's called the Knesset. There's 120 seats in the Knesset, so you need 61 seats to be a majority. There has never been a party to have that many seats. So how do they form a government? It's through coalitions. And so the main party, the party with the most seats, which in the last few elections has been Likud party, they then have to make agreements with some of the other large parties until they get 61 seats in their coalition. And so there's a lot of uh, negotiating that takes place. One party will say, okay, I'll be a part of your government, but I want to make sure that we are in control of this ministry and that ministry, education or whatever. And, uh, and they, they bargain with each other and they barter and they come finally, they arrange, okay, we've got a coalition, these are the parties, it's enough seats, and this is the coalition government. So today there are, I think, 13 parties in the Knesset and the ruling coalition, I may be wrong, but I think it's close to eight parties. So when you have that many parties in a coalition, it means that there is a lot of instability. All it takes is one party, and they may only have three or four seats. But if they pull out, the whole government collapses. And uh, so that's the Israeli political system. Um, you know, the, the system is uh, full of negotiating a lot of playing politics and you really have to be a strong politician to become a leading uh, political leader in Israel. You got to know how to navigate this system. You got to know how to negotiate, how to put together coalitions, how to fight it out, how to threaten people, how to get your way when you need it, how to give in when you need to. Uh, there's a real art to it. And the Israeli political system is absolutely fascinating uh, to watch. Now, I've given you a picture of a country with a lot of diversity. What brings it together? What unifies it? How do they hold it all together? Well, there's a couple of things. One is 
serving in the Israeli Defense Forces. The IDF is uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, is what it stands for, and it's compulsory service. So men have to serve three years, and I think women serve two years. And then after they get out of their army service for the next 20, 25 years, they're in reserve duty. And that means that every year for a whole month, they leave their work, they leave their job, and they go and they serve in the military. Now, how does this affect Israeli society? In about three different ways. One is it's a real equalizer in society. So uh, you may have, I'll just make up an example, but you may have a, a medical doctor that has to go serve in the reserves, and in the reserves he's actually answering to someone who is a, um, an engineer in real life, or um, a, they may own a car mechanic place. So um, it cuts down on a lot of the class that happens in societies. And the Israeli people have form more of a cohesive unit. It's not based so much on your profession or your job. There's not as many classes. And the IDF serves as a lot of a, of a unifier of society. Um, it is also like a rite of passage. And so there are two groups of people in Israel that do not have to serve in the military. And in a way, that leaves them out a little bit in society. And one is the ultra-religious. They are opposed to serving in the military. They don't want to serve in the military. They want to instead study Torah. And, um, and there's a small faction of ultra-Orthodox that don't believe in supporting the state of Israel because it wasn't formed by the Messiah. Um, and so um, they battle, then they don't have the same entree into Israeli society. The other group that does not have to serve in the military are Israeli Arabs. They are not required to. But what we see happening now is more and more Israeli Arabs are volunteering to serve in the IDF. Why? Because, number one, a lot of them just appreciate the freedoms and the opportunities they have in Israel, and they want to protect them. But secondly, a lot of them know that it's through your military service that you meet people who then, after military service, might help open doors for you to get a job, to advance in your career, these types of things, and also your training in the military. So it really helps you to become better integrated into Israeli society. So more of them are volunteering. There's one other way that the IDF has influenced Israeli society, and that is that it has produced a young people that realize the only way that they're going to keep their country safe. And, and let, let me tell you, let me just say one thing quickly. When If you're in a war in Israel and you're serving in the IDF, your family is probably about an hour away from the battlefront. So these young soldiers, they know they are fighting for the lives of their families. It's a different feeling for us as Americans. Our wars are on the other side of the world. They feel it as a direct, a direct threat to their families and their communities. 
So uh, these young people have learned the only way that they can keep their families and their communities and their nations safe is by staying one foot ahead, one step ahead of the enemy. And that means in technology and in uh, weaponry and in technique. And so they are always looking for ways to develop technology and to develop new weapons with new capability to stay one step ahead. Well, then that young person leaves their military service and goes into the private uh, world, and they take that same drive with them. And that is why Israel has become known as the startup nation, because they have so many young people there developing new technology as a business. And then um, once they get it up and running, they usually sell it to a big company. So these big companies like Microsoft and Intel and name them, they have R&D, research and development centers in Israel, and they're using this very drive in the young people that is birthed in them in the military. One last thing I'm going to tell you quickly about Israel. So Israel's not only leading the world in innovation and science and medical technology and all these wonderful things that they are um, inventing and discovering, but Israel is also leading the world in volunteerism. And this is not because of the army so much, although the army does play a part in this. The army teaches them how to deploy, how to uh, take a makeshift tent and set up a mobile hospital and these things. They learn all this in the military. So then they get out as a young person and they want to help the world. And so they are the first, if there's an earthquake in Haiti or in Thailand or Malaysia or wherever in the world, there's a tidal wave, there's whatever, they're the first on the scene with this advanced technology of these these hospitals that they can just put up in a matter of hours and be fully ready, not to treat injuries, but to do surgeries even. Why is that? Well, the military. But secondly, why is it? It's because of the Jewish DNA that for centuries the Jewish people have prayed for tikkun olam in Hebrew, and I will translate it. It's translated as repairing the world. They have a drive within them to make the world a better place. They are driven to help people that are hurting. They want to repair the world. And so they are leading the world in volunteerism. And little bitty Israel has taken humanitarian aid to over 140 countries in the world. That is amazing. And now my very last point to you before I close is about the Israeli people. They have been referred to, and they call themselves actually Sabra. They'll, uh, amongst themselves, a Sabra is someone who actually was born in Israel. They are real Israeli because they were born there. The others are Olim. They are immigrants that come in, but their children are going to be Sabra because their children will be born in Israel. What is a Sabra? Well, Sabra is a cactus fruit. It's very, very prickly on the outside. It's got thorns. It will hurt you if you try to touch it. 
But on the inside, it's very soft. It's very kind. And that's the people of Israel. They're known for being kind of brusque. But on the inside, they're very warm. They're very caring. They're very friendly. And so I hope you can go with me one day to see all of this for yourself. I want you to know we have a tour going later this year. I invite you to go with me down below in our show notes. We're going to give you a link to a tour interest sign up. Sign up today. Get on that list because just as soon as we have dates and pricing, we're going to send it out to everyone. So get on the list. And if you can't go this year, maybe you can go next year. We'll keep you informed when we have a tour for you to go. Go with me. Experience the miracle of this most fascinating place on earth called Israel. So with that, I'm going to end. I um, can't wait to see you back here next week. And in the meantime, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.